Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here once again with Orland Bishop, back by popular demand. Well, actually, it's that people have been telling me that, like, Charles, I listened to your conversation with Orland 10 times. So I thought, okay, there's some work to be done here. And I can understand why someone might listen to it many times, because Orland, the things that you say don't always fit easily into received categories of understanding. So it takes sometimes some attention and some thought to really absorb some of the things you say. Anyway, Orland, to introduce him to those who don't know, Orland is the founder of the Shade Tree Foundation, does work in LA, gang, gang peace work, social healing, youth initiation kind of stuff, among other things. Uh, that I would might call esoteric research. <laughs> yeah, Orland, I just see you as, I mean, I, I, it's almost, I flatter myself to see you as a really, really deep ally in, it's something, in, in an ally in a cause that is so mysterious that I really can't even say what it is. But there is a sense of deep alliance. Thank you so much for making the time. Absolutely. I'm real, it's a real pleasure to be together again, Charles. Thank you. You've been a great source of inspiration for many years, so glad we can share this time. So usually when I conduct these uh, podcasts or whatever they're called, it's very much a conversation rather than an interview. But I feel like maybe this might end up being more of an interview because I have some questions for you. And one of them came up in our last conversation. You were talking about Martin Luther King and civil rights. And I had this idea that we are in some kind of transition from civil rights to social agreements, because the whole concept of rights kind of takes for granted the separate individual in relation to a sovereign state. And as we transition as a, you know, as a civilization, as we transition to a more fluid relational self, Perhaps that old rubric of individual rights in reference to the state is evolving as well. And I'm curious what you might have to say about that. Yeah, I appreciate the framing. I think there is a trans transition from where someone is empowered to believe more in themselves to believing in the other just as deeply. A right is not just for me, it's, it's an acknowledgement 
that the framework that gives me access to my own potential is the same framework that gives access to someone else's potential. So this is the idea of civility. Civility is the framework that allows people to communicate in ways that allows the collective potential to be realized and achieved. And this process of creating the direction in which an individual joins the collective intention is what a civilization is. It had the first phase is not rights whereby I think of my own needs, but R-I-T-E, this is where it emerged from, is the right into a relationship with the hierarchies within the, the deeper conception of society. And society used to be an initiated group. Mm-hmm not a a group of people trying to do their own thing, but some, a group that's trying to realize the collective intention, but that required an R-I-T-E, rite of passage or rite of leadership into that decision process. When that doesn't happen, and then people just get the, the rights as we know them to be, and the, the demand is for more, right? For more power. So, so the RIGHT is kind of a substitute for the for the sacred RITE, and right. it's it and becomes necessary, maybe only necessary in the absence of sacred rites of initiation into society or into civility. Right. And that, that's yeah, that's a really provocative idea. Because it then leads to the question, in this time of disintegration of all of the social structures that allowed us to be initiated into something, how do we reconstruct a society that is civil in the sense that you're talking about, in, in, in which we have something to be initiated into? Yes. So this is, the, this is the framework. The civil rights movement had behind it a spiritual conception that they were not asking for something alone for themselves. They were also bringing something that was missing in the culture. They were bringing civility to the culture, which meant can people acknowledge that power is not withholding, it's actually sharing. And if you want to develop power, you develop it in a collective sense, whereby the archetypes that's in the highest reaches of human aspiration is in service to something that is sacred. So if I don't make the other person's needs sacred, I'm actually debilitating society. Yeah, I'm, I'm creating frameworks of limitations because the power that I see will, will remain political, but not become really social. So the higher power in the culture is social. It's not political or even economic. It's a framework of where it's shared. If it's not social, in a healthy sense that everyone has access to participate, 
then you're creating distinctions whereby the the culture itself, the freedoms that we want, will be um, will uh, will be actually uh, diminish, particularly the freedom to communicate, mm-hmm. which is what creates civility. So, in the absence of a common unifying aim, it kind of makes sense that we need to protect each other from each other and protect our rights from infringement by somebody else who's pursuing their happiness, their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, which, which without a, a kind of a unifying narrative of service to something larger than ourselves, then like, who knows why, you know, why, why should my pursuit of happiness do have anything to do with your pursuit of happiness that can go in t- entirely opposite directions if we're not in service to the same thing. Like I'm thinking like, you know, if, if we are say both in a band playing music, then I'm not going to say, well, you know, I have a right to play the trumpet any way I want and you have the right to play the tuba any way you want. And we have to maintain these rights. Like we all want to make the same beautiful music together. So then what we need is a way, then, then it's to my benefit actually, or to the benefit of what I care about to facilitate and encourage you to fully exercise your quote rights. So this, this, this kind of conflict among people in society, like even like the whole need for civil rights is, I'm understanding it now maybe as a symptom of a breakdown in a unifying aim. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, the, in, the unifying aim has to do with inner virtues because often it's not that I have to protect my rights from someone else. I have to protect my rights from me. I'm the mm-hmm. one who sometimes violate my own, uh, say, creativity. Mm-hmm. Most betrayals are really a self-betrayal first in which a person overreaches for something that they know intrinsically requires to be shared. So self-interest is actually a betrayal of the self at another level. When I take so much that my own potential gets underdeveloped. So greed is an underdevelopment of the human potential. This, these levels of self um, uh, self-interest whereby I don't allow myself to feel free enough to be open and sharing and giving limits my own development. So part of the, part of the, 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 the checks and balances within society is the feedback to someone else that their own power is actually causing harm to themselves. Mm-hmm. So to use the uh, musical band metaphor, it would be as if, okay, I really want to create beautiful music, so I'm going to be a one-man band, and I'm going to devise some instrument to play all these instruments at the same time. And, and, and that actually will not serve the most beautiful music. The most beautiful music can only be made in community. Right. Because it allows, it allows elements of, of real creativity, whereby uh, improvisation comes in, inspiration comes in, and a deeper communication comes in, in which I give up my 
my way of doing things to include other, other ways of doing things that I probably would not have thought of. And this is the power of inspiration and intuition. It has to have a gap in which some other influence gives me the creative potential. Right. A release of control. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. And in, in an intellectual society in which the schooling of the intellect is for achievements of, for the self, it's a critical danger when we do not have group aims as a, as a part of the exercise of education. And, and civics must be part of that education. We must realize how to contribute to a greater societal good which most, mm-hmm. most, I can say, indigenous forms, and indigenous just in this sense just means when people who are situated in a particular place realize that the ecology of that place gives each person a unique feeling for what they can contribute to the emergence of what the place could inspire the group to share. And so an economy doesn't have to be oppressive. There's the, is, is the enough imagination in this framework for a deeper collaboration and abundance is possible in everything that a group of people can share. So today we live in a time where for many reasons we are deaf to the promptings of land, of, of place, that could coordinate us into a common endeavor and a common aim and birth agreements that situate each one of us in our gifts in contribution to that aim. We don't have ways to hear the land, partly just because of a ideology that holds nature as a bunch of random forces uh, and also because of a commodity economy that sources everything from distant places and obliterates the uniqueness of things and keeps us indoors in, in front of screens and so forth. So what is the next evolutionary step to uh, cohere again on a level that's bigger than just the level of a place? but to cohere as a people. Yeah, so you, you described very carefully there this gap between object and subject. We have in our societies objectives. We want to achieve certain goals, certain distinctions in the culture, and then we limit the capacities that are necessary for that development by isolating ourselves from the good that our aims must also inspire. A human being must do good. We must embrace beauty, we must embrace truth. These are intrinsic qualities for a kind of moral memory that we're not just uh, pursuing achievements in the outer sense. We're also developing inner capacities to realize when I achieve something, it's actually good. 
for the world. You know? And so what, I, what I'm pointing to here is that in the objective reach in the human will, we have an inner subjective awareness that comes with it. Is this thing that I'm acting on creative enough to transform my life? If it's only objective to the degree that I get it done, but I don't have an inner experience of goodness for it, then I've, I've actually not done anything. Mm-hmm. And so the society becomes mechanistic. In the, in the goals it sets because it could just be done without consciousness. Right. And the feeling then is the feeling of just going through the motions. Right. And then people just end up at the end of the day feeling empty and defeated. Right. Because they tried so hard and, right. and it looks like they accomplished something. There it is. You know, I wrote all that code or I wrote this thing. I did all this thing. I had all those meetings. I did it. There it is. Like the, 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 conscious mind is being told that yes you did something but the feeling is a one of futility right so this subjective space is now becoming objective meaning that we call objective subjectivity meaning i'm becoming aware that i the i in me in my process of doing what i'm doing is becoming aware that it has to achieve something for itself as well, which we say self-consciousness. And so in the, in the act of becoming self-conscious, I'm actually developing in this cultural age a new capacity to be able to observe my, my consciousness without the content, without the things that have been possessing my will for so long. I don't have to achieve anything other than self-consciousness in order to make the most radical breakthrough of our current age. I have to know that I could actually transform all the things I've inherited and move it out of the way so that a future can come in. Mm. that would not come in without those things being dissolved and transformed whether it's race or class or all the things that have become problematic for our society. So I'm imagining, though, that you're not advising people to disengage from action in the world to heal racial and class inequities and just to come and, and you know, work on self-consciousness instead. Like, that's... I'm imagining that's probably not what you're saying. Right. So it's not either or anymore. It's, it's both simultaneously. So I call it objective subjectivity. I'm working on myself as I'm working on the world at the same time. It, it's, it is no other way to do it. And this process requires a careful observation that I'm not, and you know, one of the poets put it and said that I'm not a workman in the world. I'm a, I'm a prophetic being. I can see into things and I can see into myself. So why not do both? I think there's no alternative. Like if, when, you, when you say, okay, yes, I need to work on myself, but how do I do that? I think that it's through the things that become visible when one is in relationship to 
something in the world. Like, right. So the world, the work in the world has become myself. It is no, there's no self because I am holding the world in it. My worldview is the world. So however I see things is really me and the world at the same time. My perception is no longer separate from the world. It includes and holds the world in it. My cognition holds the world in it. So every time I act, I'm actually acting on both the world and myself at the same time. It used to be that I could only see one and then look at the other. <clears throat> Consciousness has evolved to be able to hold both simultaneously. Yes. I mean, it's always been true that any act is an act on self and on world. But what you're saying is that we're becoming more and more aware of that. Right. So to take just a really mundane example, I mean, maybe this is because I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and this is, you know, a place where, where this, this kind of um, these ideas are, are in circulation. But I noticed that people are not so quick to stand in judgment of others as they used to be. There's an awareness that, oh, whatever I'm seeing in this person is mirroring something in me too. So however I relate to this person is also an act of self-inquiry. However, I, I choose the story that I make about them is revealing something in my own consciousness. There's like actually an awareness of this right now yeah. that did not exist as far as I knew when I was 20 years old. Right. So it, 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 it matures in the, in the individual from youth to adulthood. So by the time a certain age, we, we actually begin to experience this inner cognition of the other. The other becomes more real as we get older. Yes. But we become more real as well as we get older as well, in the sense that more of my spiritual capacities become accessible to me in this mid-age range. It's called a second adolescent. Mm. When, the, when the chemistry of life gets back into the deeper spiritual body, we call the astral body, this is the part of the self that, that, that in a sense, holds the future sense of me. So if I want to stay in my old habits, I'm actually going to create illness for myself by a certain age if I don't release my creativity. But this is also true for the whole culture. If we don't embrace our future potential, the social aims, the cultural aims, political aims and such will break down because this is actually a representation of the inner life of the human being. It looks like it's happening right now, this breakdown. Yes. In our culture. Right. And we may want to substitute it with, because we live in a technological age, we may want to substitute everything with technology. But the, the, the need, the need would never be substituted. The need that we have is fundamental for the RITE part of our lives. The rite of passage part of our lives, the initiation part of our lives has to continue to be developed. There is no substitute for that because it is actually an, an intrinsic feeling. And no one can give us that unless we are actually working on something that is actually truthful in our will. 
Yeah. I'm just uh, digesting that and thinking about the um, dramatic increase in suicides among middle-aged people, especially men. And I wonder if there's a connection there between this, you know, when, when on the soul level, you know that something is supposed to happen, an initiation is supposed to happen, a new phase of life is supposed to happen, uh, an orientation toward, like on a deeper level, an orientation toward what you're born to serve. And then it doesn't happen. The initiation doesn't happen and one feels confined in this obsolete life, this, this shell that cannot accommodate who I really want to be. And so the desire to break out of that, one way to break out of that is, would be suicide, to liberate oneself from the confines of a world that one feels trapped in. And I'm just thinking like, I don't want to, you know, I mean, a lot of the suicide is just from sheer desperation and pain, um, opioid addiction and so forth. So I, I'm wary of kind of painting it into esoteric tone, but I feel like there is something about maybe just on a cultural level too, like this, this feeling of confinement in too small a world and confinement in too small a self. So, so the, 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 the esoteric was probably will become more real or more realized in our society as we go along because the inner feeling is getting stronger. So <laughs> this means what's hidden. What's hidden often in the motive of life is to have the, the, uh, the knowledge of what is actually generating the questions that I'm having. If a person can't answer the questions they're having with the knowledge that society provides, they can only go one place into themselves. And so this is the question where a person who's contemplating suicide is reaching into themselves because society hasn't given any answer to the questions that they're having. They haven't given a framework of, because initiation is often a brush with death. It often includes some level of contemplation that if I no longer exist, then what am I taking with me? And sometimes mm -hmm. if a person doesn't accumulate by a certain age enough answers to what their life could mean, everyone will contemplate suicide. It's just human nature. It's almost like they're creating uh, the best they can that brush with death. They're like trying to create an initiation for themselves. Well, well, well so, so the, the person, the human being is always dying. This is, this is the esoteric part of the human life. We're always dying. But we also are always living. And the question is, is what experience will pull us to one or the other? Life and death is always there. It's not that life is just full. That is not the human being. The human being is always in a balance between life and death. Some practices tell us to pay attention to one or the other and learn which one tells us the deeper truth. 
initiation questions really must take in both. The deeper philosophy of life takes in both. The deeper religions of life takes in both. The contemplation of life and death, it's not one or the other. I'm thinking now on a collective level that we are probably in a phase where we are drawn to the contemplation of death and to the reality of the death that is present in life because of climate change, perhaps because of these crises that are putting it in front of our face that our entire civilization is, is mortal. And this, I don't know, like, I'm thinking in, when I was a kid growing up, like that same pull toward the contemplation of death existed in the form of nuclear Armageddon. Like that was very present in the collective consciousness. And this kind of apocalyptic thinking, maybe it waxes and wanes. I don't know. My life hasn't been long enough, but I wonder, my, my belief is that it was not as present in the consciousness in like, say, the 1930s. Uh, before the nuclear era. So here we have an era, like I, I, I think that we are having a collective initiation that started with, with the bomb, which was the first time that it became inescapably obvious that war is not the answer. Like it, that became no longer a viable option to defeat the enemy through total war. For the first time in human history, that was no longer an option. Instead, we had mutually assured destruction. And that gave us a quickening in the evolution toward, I call it the story of interbeing, that what we do to the other, we do to ourselves in some form. And now we have climate change, which, I mean, I think that the dominant narrative of climate change is really problematic, but still, like, its effect on us is to drive home the point that what we do to nature, what we do to other beings, not just human beings, but what we do to any being also will affect ourselves. So this... And so I've been, I've been thinking about it in that sense of, you know, in that kind of initiation into a more expanded self that includes the other to some degree. And this element you're bringing in um, that it's also a contemplation of death is, it feels really relevant to me. And I'm, I'm again, it's something that I want to digest a little bit more, but maybe you have a further comment about that. Yeah. I appreciate you framing it a little further. We, we've been in a cult of death for a long time. Our, our modern civilization, from colonialism in which cultures have died, we, we, we've actually extinguished a lot of significant cultures from the world in the last five, six hundred years. Yes. And so the atomic age is actually not the first of really seeing massive loss of potential. We've actually eliminated a lot of species from the world. Yes. In our hunt for trophy. But what I'm saying is that until the atomic age, we could maintain the illusion that we were just doing that to others. 
right. that it wasn't going to affect ourselves. Like right. that's what I'm seeing as a yeah. right. So so this this thing of death of the other was actually still a kind of obsession until that age when yes when the the clear mutual destruction power got uh, came into the world. But this is the power of a shared reality. You see the shift. It came. It brought us back. If we want to share future, we have to share the agreement not to self-destruct. So a, a shared sense of reality became clear is <laughs> to, to this. What, what has been evolving in those 500 years in modernity is this objective subjectivity. That if I destroy the world, I destroy myself. That's, in, that's hidden in the initiation. So we can call it atomic age, or what, but it's still a rite of passage of humanity from the age where electricity and magnetism and fire could, would only limit destruction to a certain point, where now it's global. This level of destruction is really, has put our contemplation of death at a higher level in which we don't want that. So what do we do? We started to learn how to negotiate the atomic energy age. Yeah. But, but this, is, this is, again, when we put ourselves at risk, we put ourselves in the opportunity of development at the same time. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there's even any other way. And I wonder, you know, sometimes I think about the extinction of cultures, languages, stories, um, not to mention species. And I wonder, is there some God's eye view of the whole thing that, from which I can understand that actually these extinctions were a necessary sacrifice to complete an evolutionary journey that we are collectively on? Like, like what's the kind of, is there another way to understand these extinctions in some other way besides that they were just horrific tragedies? And I'm not saying as a substitute for feeling them as a horrific tragedy, but I'm saying like another lens in which to understand them. So, and, and this brings us back to the esoteric question. And, and so some of the areas of research that we are engaged with is to understand what is on the other side of death. What, what happened in the release of the life forces from the form we call our body of any body? What happens with the energy once released? This is still a fundamentally traceable and one can interact with it at different planes of non-existence. So ultimately, most of us will have to become esotericists if we're to make sense of the loss, losses that we have already endured in our culture. Why? Because the energy is still trying to communicate with consciousness. So the bodies are gone, but the, the, the beingness, 
that inhabit those bodies are still active on different planes of reality, causing environmental changes. Because they, it's, still, it's still constituted within the framework of what we call reality. Kind of like ghosts, in a way. Uh, and maybe, I have a couple of things to say about that. Um, one is just that when the release of the life force is not held in a appropriate structure that can direct it toward the purpose it was supposed to move to when, when it got released, then it's still there, still seeking the fulfillment of its purpose and seeking a cultural vessel through which that, that purpose can be fulfilled. Right. So, and it will have actually a higher functional capacity to evolve the planet's potential beyond human conception. So I collect stories and I hold circles sometimes where people share stories that the, the invitation will often be, please tell a story that violated what you thought of as real until that experience happened. And some of the stories involve death, involve communications from loved ones after they died in very dramatic ways. And I think that these can be, can be very useful to take in because they subvert the dominant conception of what a self is and who I am and open us to other conceptions. And I think that sometimes people will then jump too quickly to kind of a, a simplified uh, transmigration of souls from one lifetime to the next, to the next, to the next, um, which still kind of preserves a sense of a separate self. It's just not the body, but it's some other thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of that. It's a story that is useful to illuminate some things and can obscure other things, just like any other story or any other map of reality. But yeah, like, so these stories really make me curious and they inflame various skeptical parts of myself and wounded parts of myself, parts that, that like, maybe I, I want to believe that these experiences are authentic and I'm afraid to believe they're authentic. So I will become, I wouldn't say like cynical or skeptical even, but it's more, I kind of hold it at a bit of an intellectual distance. And yeah, I, I feel a call though toward a deeper understanding. I mean, maybe all this is just a long-winded long way to say, Orland, what happens after we die? Go, let's, let's go back to a little bit. What happens when we, what happens to my thoughts when I forget something? Where does my knowing goes when I forget something? Before we even get to the death part, that's a yeah. little off. So when I forget something, it's, it's still available in some level of consciousness. And if I concentrate my attention, I can recover what I've forgotten. We call remembering. Mm -hmm. So remembering is the first process. 
in the step to clarification of this higher practical development. Rather than saying, I want to know or learn something, you just change it. But if I choose to remember, my consciousness actually becomes much more complex than if I try to learn something. Because I will resist learning, but I can't resist remembering. So the higher power for the human being is practice remembering. Because there was a state in consciousness in which everything I was open to actually allowing everything to be available to me. In early childhood, that's who I was. I was trying to remember, not learn. And I was hoping that those who were older than me had remembered everything. So I asked them what they remembered, but they only had learned things. And they learned it inadequately to the truth that I am perceiving as a child. So when I come back to perception, our natural perception is to be open to mystery. But having learned that mysteries actually create strong paradoxes in consciousness, meaning no one can always explain what I'm perceiving, even myself, because there's, no yet, there's not yet a knowledge codex for it, then I have to really advance my con cognition. And then we have a society that's saying, do not advance your cognition too far or you will be considered weird. You know, you, we, we ostracize yeah. people who advance themselves. Some that we, if we can utilize their knowledge, we call them geniuses. If they play good music or they create right. good mathematics or all, we then make a space for them. But for the most part, the kid that no, it's not even a space like it's not even necessarily that we ostracize them because they're weird it's just that the the functions that become available to them have no avenue of expression in right. the that we have right now exactly yeah. so 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 the, the human being makes a natural sacrifice to stay within the collective even if the collective is saying no to their genius yes mm -hmm. so we don't often pursue our full abilities or our full cognitive capacities. We pursue relational dynamics as the highest part of our human process. However, when we go into sleep, something else happens as well. We individuate all the way in which the body that we actually are in when we are awake is put aside and we go back into a deep psychic space of, of aspiring for some slight edge in waking. When I wake up, do I have the freedom to exercise what I've just witnessed in sleep? Because there I'm really remaking my conscious agreements with myself about existence itself. So I can wake up and be more whole, or I can wake up and go back to the fundamental frameworks that keeps me safe within the culture. So all this happens before death. 
But right at this last stage of, of death, when the human being begins to separate from the physical body, and people who have worked in hospice care, they know these stages very well. When the person comes into a cognitive freedom, that they're not their body, they're just the pure awareness. And if they can communicate from that space, they actually reveal who they really are. and who they had always wanted to be, and what was in the way of that. If that, those last few moments, some people live everything of their life in those last few moments, because it's really just the pure awareness that my perception was limited by the cultural framework in which I agreed because I didn't want to live beyond my time. Yes. And so the time spirit makes the sacrifice to be in the time body because that is our karmic obligation. We are actually responsible for sharing a reality. And if it means that I limit myself to do that, the human being chooses that as well. So we have these capacities that we, in some semi-conscious or unconscious way, limit in order to remain in coherency with the times in which we live to not be weird, or it could also just be that that we that the particular flavor of genius that would become available to us isn't necessary or doesn't even have a home right now. And we're not here just to fully explore the far reaches of that genius. Like the genius has a purpose of service to what the next evolutionary step of that society is to be. So it still feels, though, like a bit tragic. Like some people, they get to exercise their genius. They get to be a musician, a mathematician. They get to do it. And others, sorry, your genius is not what's needed right now. So you just get to be a janitor. I mean, that can't be right. So there's, there's something else here. So this is the subtle thing about karma, and destiny, it's, it's interwoven. So part of the karmic factor is that there will be some condition that limits my creativity that is beyond the society, but it's hidden in the society. That, that this, is a, this is an agreement that I, I choose a circumstance that, that will itself limit my destiny. And I have to figure out the right, R-I-T-E, of passage through that. And so it, it's, it's not just that everyone will have everything they need. Even if you provide everything they need, they will still require something that makes consciousness a deeper effort. Because it, some, some people will even self-sabotage their own potential because that is just part of the makeup of what initiation is the human being must be initiated regardless of how much society provides as uh, say the conditions necessary for achievements and it's really not about achievements it's about transformation there's something in me that i must transform in my own will in my own inner unconscious 
that then brings me into society. So society used to be knowers who could help support and sponsor the developmental step that a person must take. But if I'm just giving a person a job, I may not be paying attention to the inner developmental question deeply enough. So it seems like there's maybe there's two things that might require an initiatory rite. One of them would be to initiate to be initiated into society, as you were saying, into a useful function that engages the gifts that you come with. Yeah. And the other is an initiation into the activation of those gifts themselves. Right. So if you have one without the other, if you have the social initiation without the activation of the gifts, then your utility is limited because you're only um, operating from what is automatically available to you. And if you have the initiation of your genius, say, without initiation into a society, you become kind of the lone genius or even the psychotic. In one of my books, I described this encounter with a man, I think I called him Frank, who was just incredibly brilliant, and, and he was engaged in this, in this years-long elaborate project that involved cutting words from cereal boxes and, and pasting them together and, and finding, like, sussing out all of these hidden connections. Look, General mm. Mills, the military-industrial complex, Battle Creek, mm. Michigan, da-da-da-da, like, mm. piecing together this enormous conspiracy from you know, magazine advertisements and mm-hmm. product packages. And that might be an example of someone who's not been initiated or not received their appropriate proper initiations into society. Just kind of playing with this and also curious about, well, what about Mozart? Did he, was he somehow initiated? Like, or, I mean, it seems like, I mean, he was three years old and he's already, you know, playing sonatas. Like, what's going on with that? And I'm so curious about death too, so... Yeah, and, and and so I mean, it, it it made his life really challenging to have access to this superconscious faculty at the level of development in such an age. Yes, a lot of cultural recognition, but the pressure is not being able to be considered. Normal. This or this. Normality is a is an important part of the psyche. Mm-hmm. A person wants to have yes access to the genius, but they also want to be considered normal. So, in a culture that celebrates people's genius and don't celebrate their normality, is a crisis. So, so mm-hmm. when people feel celebrated when they are normal, it helps their genius to reveal itself. Because part of the protection that some, in some cases is the fact that a person do not want to just be in this exercise or their higher potential of gift. And it's, it's, um, there's a risk there. Yeah, that's like really speaking to me personally because often when I'm in a social setting, it's because I'm a speaker somewhere and I'm in the exercise of my genius. Yeah. And and like I also want to be just a man. Yeah. A normal person and to relate to people on that level. Um 
Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I, it's speaking to me. And, and this is where the society now says to 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 anyone with certain gifts, well, then be in service of something in addition to that, so that you also work through the karma. Part of the karma is is the need to be in a space where I don't have to keep making all that levels of effort. I don't have to show up on this high level all the time. Right. And so, but, but there is a need for the balance. What else allows you to do to be in service of someone else's gift? So this is the other side of it. It's not just mm. my gift. Yes. Is be in service of someone else's gift because this allows the societal part to be developed in a in a healthier way. Yes, because we only want to mostly celebrate the the genius, and and then you know everybody else feels that they don't have something to contribute. Right, and that's not true. Everyone does, but right. in a in a sharing space in a sharing culture, what happens is that we discover. That we're actually is not about the gift itself; is about the relationship between people that allows this exchange and interaction and development to happen, in which what I what I bring to the world is actually um, more easily transferred to the world when I take interest in other people's experiences and life as well. Yes, that that brings up to to, to me like this thing I often speak about that the expression like our, our culture values certain kinds of expression of gift or expression of genius, namely the ones that coincide with values of fame, of making money, um, things that are visible on, on a public scale and there, thereby devalues, ignores, trivializes gifts that operate on a hidden level. Mm-hmm. Like, someone could be an incredibly gifted parent mm-hmm. and that never gets celebrated and right. that that's no less an expression of genius right. than someone, you know, a, a fantastic musician or whatever speaker or performer. Like, we overlook. Like maybe it's not necessarily that someone's genius has no place in society. It's that we're not used to seeing and valuing its its expression. Yeah, and, and we've we've lost the the context of the genius. The genius is guided by the muse, and so there's a there's a there's always a sense that the inspiration for the genius to be become active is the fact that there are entities or intelligences. That is the source of the of what the genius utilizes to express this unique capacity. Mm-hmm. So music is not uh, just in the person's capacity to play; it's in the spheres, the harmony of the spheres. It's already there and is discovered and played. Yeah, Mozart so, would just write it down. He, he, he wouldn't right. Yes. It. Right. Yeah. It, it, exactly. So, so the, these 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 frequencies are are distributed throughout the, the 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 cosmos, so to speak. It's within the environment, in nature, and 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 the deep collect superconscious of of the collective. 
And so part of it is that we're always drawing from something yeah. through our perception. And again, this is why I go back to, to this, this earlier factor of, of every child has the potential for their genius to be realized by a certain age because the perception is open. And even if it's not, there are certain educational principles that can open it to yeah. levels of trust and development. I mean, that's why initiation is necessary, because it, it's an attunement to right. something that's already there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And maybe some people like, you know, Mozart or, or you know, Ghosts or uh, Einstein, maybe they were born in that state of openness and receptivity, and for some reason it was just never shut down, or perhaps the will of that field of knowledge to express itself was so powerful because it was so in harmony with the times that it just came through them unstoppably. Right. Yeah. So there we are at the last minute of life. And this, you, you were, you were kind of yeah. narrating that. And then we went on to a gift and genius, but I'm, I'm, I feel like, there is still something in the question of then what happens? Yes. So, so at, at this, at, at the, when, when, the, when the, the, the spirit self separates from the physical body, there's, an, there's a, a recapitulation, a remembering of the primary agreement of what the self brought to the world. And a witnessing of, did I fulfill it? Did I live into this intention? So it's not even a, 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 a skill. It's actually an intention to say, I will, I will always choose my will to do something that gives purpose and meaning to whatever I'm doing at a level in which the imprint is good and then I'm free of this goodness that I didn't take it back with me. I fulfilled it. So there's a level of the will. When, I, when it breaks through karma, it becomes good. When, it, when it's fulfilled itself, I've not withheld it. This is what goodness is. It's not a moral thing of, you know, of beliefs. It's whether I truly made the effort to overcome self-interest and posit into the world my will, leaving my signature with it, that it's free from me. Yeah. So this is... It's, 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 about, it's about whether or not, or to the degree, yeah. um, I have fulfilled um, my creative purpose. Right. Because I'm a creator. Because I'm a creator, yes. Yeah. And and if I come here and I don't exercise that capacity, then then I'm not done yet. Right. So this is the this is the evaluation that the soul consciousness would make at death. Did I honor what I had the opportunity to do? And I'm thinking, I'm fast forwarding to my own moment of death, and I'm thinking. Well, a little bit, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then, 
then, but what about like the understanding that, you know, like people do the best they can. Right. And, and it seems like a bit of a uh, stringent standard that you're setting up here. You know, like when I, when I ask, when I meet somebody and they have incredible potential and, and I ask, well, why aren't they fulfilling that potential? And then I get to, well, they were abused as children. They were like, they went through all kinds of things. No wonder, like I understand, I understand my friend, why you're not fulfilling your potential. So you're not saying that at the moment of death, they're going to evaluate that they have failed because I mean, I think really sometimes when I offer something to people who are deeply wounded like that, I say, you know, if you accomplish nothing else but to heal 10% of that, then you've actually had a really good life. Yeah. So how does that fit in? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And that's why I start, I went back to remembering. Because anybody who, anyone who is in a crisis what they're trying to do is remember a time when they were not. They want to go back to the time before the abuse. They want to go back to the time before the trauma. The body tries to remember this earliest stage when it was not yet wounded or when it did not forget its higher purpose. We call it healing, and you just mentioned it again. So this is the natural process of the self. It wants to overcome the conditions that limit its potential to become self-conscious. So if it doesn't happen in remembering, it will try to happen in sleep. Mm Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't happen in sleep, the only other option, it, happens, it has to happen in society, in waking consciousness. Someone has to insist that there's an opportunity to heal. Someone has to provide a context. This is mm-hmm. society's work. We should not leave people in their womb. This is why you know, people explore all kinds of therapy, and, and, because we know it's possible for that breakthrough. If it doesn't happen then, then it's left for these other levels of the mystery, which would include yes. death. I mean, I think that you've articulated the most important requisite of successful therapy of any kind, which is that the therapist, whether it's a person or a group, has to know that the other person can heal. Right. And has to, and has to be able to hold that knowing strongly enough that the other, that, that, that they can hold the other person in that knowing until that they can know it themselves. Right. Yes. yes. That's, and that's almost the only thing necessary. I mean, I guess like there are skills and things and learnings that are useful on top of that, but um, without that, there's nothing. But the higher, because the highest level of the self need is belonging. Even if I don't accomplish anything significant, belonging is the most important to the human being. No one wants to just be exiled in a wound by themselves. Yeah. And it kind of comes full circle because the particular gifts and genius that are especially called for 
in our times and called forth by our times are precisely the ones that enable us to create conditions for this healing to happen yeah. for other people. To, to, and, and, you know, each person, it's not like that some people are the healers and other people are the healees. It's that everybody's gift, there is at least one person in the world and maybe many, depending on the nature of the gift, mm-hmm. um, everybody's gift is to serve the healing of some, somebody so, else. Exactly. I would, I, would, I would definitely say yes to that. Because the context, the context is that something that we share would become more abundant, not only to me and to us in this time, but it becomes the substance for future times as well. It becomes the, the criteria for some other soul that is going to be born into the world to say, this is the right time. This condition is set. Mm-hmm. And we set the conditions upon which we say the, the, the karma of other people's lives gets identified. So returning to the death moment here, is that okay? Yes. So there's, there's this kind of evaluation. And then what happens? Well, one one goes back into the the the, the deeper story, which is which there, there's a memory in the astral body that has to be transformed. This life is a memory; it becomes a memory that has to be transformed to prepare free energy for the soul to say possible reincarnation, possible futures. Mm-hmm. It has to dissolve this content and context of life itself. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that is the work for those on the other side, dissolving who they had become mm-hmm. and, and allowing the soul to return to a state of, of uh, creative freedom to be incarnated no, but- again. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't only happen with death. I mean, that happens in life transitions too. It's necessary to dissolve who you've become. Right. So, so when we don't complete all of that, in the, so that's what I said, in the living experience, we have the same functional capacities that we have in death. We just don't, we just have to do it in a body. We have to do it within the framework of perception and cognition. Mm-hmm. And the, the perception and cognition has to pass through the living organs of our individual existence. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is one part of initiation. If it doesn't happen there, it has to happen on the other side of right. the body. Right. And if it happens on this side, then capacities become available. That Right. Spiritual capacities become available here. Right. Right. That we normally would would uh, would only experience on, on the other side. So, um, I'm I'm not sure how much of of your time I want to take or how much you have available today. And yes. we have a we had a tentative plan maybe to continue tomorrow. Yes. Maybe I could just we could kind of wrap it up with uh, yeah, please. Mm-hmm. One more thing. Gosh, I mean, I have a lot of things I could ask you. Sometimes people, I'll, I'll deliver the material 
that I speak about. And then people will say, okay, Charles, so, so what do we do? Like, what's your advice? Or what's my next step? Like, what should I do right now with all of this? Because cause the information can be like really uplifting, inspiring, like, yeah. like it, magical even. And I sense sometimes that this, okay, so what do I do is almost a down vibration mm-hmm. and that it's not the right question. And that what the way that it works is that information comes in and literally informs yeah. a person. And it could be from, you know, me or, or from, you know, a book or from an experience or from, from something like the information comes in and changes who you are and begins to work you. And that to say, well, what do I do? It's almost a request to fit that into an old story to make it into a comfortable doing that I can kind of control now because I know what to do. So um, that's a, a long disclaimer to set up a question for you, which is, and you might respond with something echoing something of what I said, but, but like, I also feel that, okay, like here I am in a society that doesn't have these rights, that doesn't have these initiations. And I understand and believe and trust you that there are untapped spiritual capacities, gifts, genius. So like, what do I do with this information? It feels almost a little frustrating to, to hear this. And what do I do about it? Yeah. So, so, and this, this is, this is the stage in, in our consciousness development whereby we must contemplate. So the will does not necessarily want to, it wants to aspire for something to do, but it can only aspire to the level of con- the contemplative will first, whereby I don't have to feel the push, but the pull, like to, to wait for the inspiration because the inspiration comes with a kind of initiation as well. The, yeah. the one thing that we want to, to not to do with, with this, the kind of knowledge you bring to the world is to try to intellectualize it to the degree in which I want to make an achievement of it mm-hmm. and not a realization of it. Right. When I realize it to be true, what is in me will naturally awake. Yes. But I have to let it become a source of a substance for my will and not just a motive of my will doing something without a capacity of trust for it or even love for it. It has to actually enter into the contemplative life of the person. So I have to actually withhold the instinctual drive of our society to rush out and do something. 
Yep. This habit has to be transformed by contemplation. So ironically enough, you are actually prescribing something to do, which is to contemplate these things, to allow it to come in. And this is our natural early childhood power. Mm-hmm. This is the, 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 child, the child is always in contemplation. Mm-hmm. And because of that, a high level of imagination comes in, high level of inspiration comes in, and high levels of intuition comes in. And this is the natural initiatory power of the human being, even without some other knower saying this is what you should know. Contemplation prepares a human being to know. Yes. So, for the people listening to this, do not hesitate to listen more than once and to trust that the information that's been carried through our words and in other ways too, through the voice that underlies the words, yeah, to trust that that information will as it is absorbed through contemplation, that it will change you into a person who might know what to do in a situation where you had not previously known what to do. Like the question of what do I do with this, as Orland says, is pulled through us by a circumstance that will arise because the received information has prepared us for that circumstance. Is that more or less accurate? Yes, yes. Yes. It becomes energy and not information. The the information gets dissolved into the willing being that then finds a higher purpose for it. The higher purpose is that it has to become you. All information has to become the person, essentially the subjective willing being, and then a new objective becomes assigned. Right, because the information, the the words, the concepts, those are a package for energy, or they are, they are, yeah, they're they're like the the chemical bonds that are in food that when they're dissolved, become energy. Yeah. Thank you. Any parting words for today? Well, this is this is I I love this. I love the time together. So, yeah, I, I, I invite us to do as much as we can with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. So, are we on for tomorrow? I'll be on to tomorrow. Tomorrow's set. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm so grateful, yes, Orlin, sorry, that you're too. making the time. I know, like, I hesitate often to reach out to you because I just know that you're doing such important, beautiful work that I don't want to take you away from it. No, that this is good to do. It's yeah, a, it's a so source too. of inspiration for me too. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. Well, right. um, thanks so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah. See you. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay. Take care. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you 
get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.